Get ready to rumble. Shilling Show Unleashed on the Seven Thunders Media Network. Former city councilor, husband, father, and community watchdog. Your host, Rob Schilling. Welcome to the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Remember, your direct support makes our show possible, and you can directly support this podcast by visiting shillingshow.com and then clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page to make a monthly contribution. We appreciate your support. The Schilling Show Unleashed podcast welcomes Bruce Eberly, the founder of Eberly Communications, Board of Governors member at the Ronald Reagan Ranch, author of the new book, Choose Freedom, Embrace It, Understand It, Defend It. Bruce Eberly, thank you for joining us today on the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Glad to be with you. You've been involved over the years with Young Americans for Freedom, a group that's talking to young people about freedom, and you're reaching out to them via this book. But I wanted to start out by talking about the difference between freedom and liberty, because as other groups emphasize the word liberty, is there a substantive difference? And if so, tell us why. Well, when you say that, I always think of what John Milton said. He said, license they mean when they cry freedom. Mm. And I think that is the essence of it. And the difference really is that those of us who believe in liberty, even though I use the term freedom, and they're quite a bit interchangeable, but nevertheless, when the founders understood it, they understood this as being not unlimited freedom where anybody could do what they wanted to do, like in the French Revolution, but rather uh, as a freedom that was restrained by the individual, because the individual was responsible for his freedom, because if he didn't exercise self-restraint in his own life and live his life in a moral way, then uh, it, freedom itself was actually impossible, that liberty was really truly impossible. You make a point in the book uh, towards the beginning, and this is really critical. I want us to take some time with it. Bruce, let's talk about freedom, and it must be chosen. In other words, you don't just inherit it and enjoy it. You have to choose it. Tell us why. Freedom is uh, like unstable, we might even say like ozone. Mm -hmm. Uh, It doesn't last forever unless it's nurtured, unless it's encouraged, unless actually the society as a whole understands the importance of preserving this freedom and understanding that this is not, again, license. This is a liberty to be able to exercise your God-given rights uh, underneath the law. And unless you understand liberty that way or understand freedom that way, it's not truly uh, freedom, and, it, and it's certainly going to go away very fast. So it seems that we've, we've lost a hold of that uh, culturally and as a society. Do you think that's the case? And if so, how do we get disconnected? Well, I'm an optimist always, <laughs> as you know, if you've read farther into the book. And that I, I think that, uh, you know, and I just finished, by the way, I want to say reading the trilogy of books written by uh, Marshall and Manuel, The Light and the Glory, From Sea to Shining Sea and Sounding Forth, the Trumpet, which are three of the most excellent books I've read on, on liberty and our sources of freedom in this country. And uh, they show that from time to time, where this is not the first time in American history that we've had this downward 
trend where people have gotten away from the founding principles of the republic or that the society itself has rejected the moral foundation that is necessary for a free society to exist. We've got it's been like a roller coaster all the way from the 1600s all the way in this in this series only goes up into 1860, but they go through like four different periods where it went downhill. And it takes spiritual renewal really to be able to bring back a liberty of the kind that the founders envisioned. Maybe you could give us an example of what was happening. What were the societal indicators at the time and the, maybe the last one that you referenced? And how was it that the nation was able to turn around through spiritual renewal? Let's take a really recent one, actually. Okay. And it's outside of the purview of those three books. And that is uh, Eisenhower. There's this marvelous book written uh, called The Soul of an American President by Alan Sears. And in this book, it's, a, it's not a long book. It's like 130 pages is all. I learned an awful lot about Eisenhower, but more importantly, when Eisenhower got back, and by the time he got into the White House, he, of course, served as Chancellor of Columbia University first. Uh, Once he got into the White House, he observed that the GIs were not going back to church. Here they'd been at war for all these years. They really didn't have this opportunity of, of community worship. And so Ike was very concerned about that. And Eisenhower himself went to the Veterans of Foreign Wars, I believe, and he went to them and he said, if you launch a back-to-God movement, I will back it. And at the same time this is happening, uh, Billy Graham is emerging as a, uh, an evangelist across the country. A lot of wonderful things happen at that instant in time. But Ike was the one that was the, in many ways, which people don't know, the driving force behind this coming back. Once this happened, once people realized it was happening, I happen to believe it's happening today, by the way. I believe that we're starting to see spiritual renewal take place across the land. And I think that is the beginning of the comeback of America. Tell us, if you would, Bruce, uh, where you see the manifestations of that, because I do want to bring some hope to the listening audience. (laughs) Well, I have a chapter in the book on this, and I talk about this. And I said you can see it even in the culture. I use the example in the book of... Top Gun Maverick movie, which is, you know, not necessarily what you would think of as a, a book that you would be interested in, but it's a patriotic movie. The Chinese were very angry about the fact that in the movie, the star uh, was going to wear a jacket that had on there the emblems of South Korea and also Japan, and uh, they didn't like that. And so these Chinese backers had put $10 million into this movie. Now, $10 million is not a huge amount of money, but it's a lot of money when you're trying to raise money putting a movie together. Ultimately, the producers of Top Gun Maverick said, take a leap. We're not, we don't want it. They had the guts to do it, do it to tell them to say no, and so it changed. But also look at enrollment in colleges and universities. You hear all this thing about all the colleges and universities are facing are declining enrollment, and they excuse it on the basis of the fact that, of course, the birth rates went down. But that's not really the total reason. The real reason is that people are saying, what are their, their, first of all, their children are being indoctrinated in nonsense. Secondly, they're getting degrees in something they can't make a living with. But you're seeing all this decline, and so people are talking about this. But what they don't see is places like Hillsdale College and Grove City College, and I can name a half a dozen others that are actually growing at the same time. And who are these colleges that are growing? They're not only colleges that are conservative, but they're colleges that are Christian, not just 
because that name is in the name of the school, but because, in fact, they are, in truth, Christian universities. I happen to sit on the Board of Regents of Wisconsin Lutheran College, and I can tell you it's a truly Christian college, and it is also very conservative. And so these colleges are growing, and they're growing at the same time. And not only that, if you try to get into Hillsdale College today, for instance, they only accept 22% of the applicants. If you try to get into Grove City College, they only accept 38% of the applicants. And you'll find this at other Christian colleges and other conservative colleges across the country. So that's my second thing. I forget in the book what I use is another example. People in the voting age of 18 to 35, who would have believed, say, 12 months ago, that those people would be voting for, be supporting Donald Trump for president? I just don't think you'd have seen it. The fact is, we are seeing a Christian and a conservative movement in America today like I haven't seen really, I don't think, in my lifetime. And when you also look at the number of things that are going on, I'm involved with Time of Grace Ministry, an evangelism organization, and we talk with other groups, too, and we're seeing such a movement of evangelism across America like we haven't seen since, I don't think, the 1950s. And yet there seems to be uh, a dichotomy here, because on the one hand, we're seeing these cultural restraints that we've had in the nation's history, uh, the reverence for Christianity, the ex- public expression of religion. We're seeing that under attack by small G God of government. And then on the other hand, we have this group that you're speaking about, this growing uh, faith-filled movement that's coming up in America. So how are these two things happening at the same time? Well, you know, I think that's a really good point. But when does Christianity really thrive? It thrives under persecution. It thrives when it's under attack. And throughout history, that's been true. The persecuted church grows stronger than the church that has no restraints on it in many cases. And so I think that's what we're seeing, too, is we're seeing a reaction to this anti-Christian aspect of government and of education that is prevalent throughout our society. I'd like to speak about some of the movers and shakers of the uh, recent conservative movement. Of course, these are no longer with us, but you certainly worked with and were familiar with people like William F. Buckley and Ronald Reagan. Would you tell us a little bit about each of them and their contributions to the conservative movement as we know it today? You know, Buckley was, of course, unique, and he was considered the father of the American conservative movement. And uh, it was at his estate there of his parents, really, where they, they founded the Young Americans for Freedom, even. And, but Buckley himself gave a lot of his life just to nurturing and promoting the conservative cause. And I think a lot of people don't understand what the conservative cause is. What does that mean? Well, it's a direct linkage, a direct bright line, as I say in the book, between the thinking and philosophy of America's founders and today's conservative movement. And when I joined the conservative movement, there were like two organizations, uh, maybe, in the conservative movement. Today, there's probably 150 or 250 conservative organizations uh, working on all different aspects. But I emphasize the word conservative and not objectivist, because objectivists, in my view, take the approach of the French Revolution. They want to have freedom, but without any restraint whatsoever, and I don't believe that's possible. That would be like the Ayn Rand group, the objectivists. How about the libertarians, which are, in many ways, completely opposed to the objectivists, although there are some overlaps there? What do you make of the libertarian movement? 
Well, that is an interesting topic, and I've discussed this with Dr. Don Vine a number of times, and he and I don't always agree on this. But I, my own personal view is, in 1969, there you heard of a lot of things about objectivists, and all of a sudden after that you didn't. They were all libertarians. Mm. Well. That's a distortion of the truth. Obviously, libertarians are like, really like, William F. Buckley was a libertarian. Leonard Reed was a libertarian. But the fact is, when the objectivists realized that they couldn't market their uh, objectivism, it was not marketable, they stole, in in many ways, or tried to appropriate the name libertarian in order to help themselves advance their cause. When you take Cato Institute, if you go down there and meet a lot of the people there, most of them are objectivists. They're not libertarians. I'd like to talk also about Ronald Reagan, who I remember coming up and was so excited for, worked for him in his uh, initial campaign for president and lived under his governorship, although it was quite small in California. Uh, This man is still talked about with such great reverence and rightfully so. Absolutely. Uh, Ronald Reagan was one of a kind. He was certainly a blessing to our nation in in so many ways. Uh, I got to know his son, uh, Michael, pretty well, and he talked to me, by the way, about Ronald Reagan's faith. And that hasn't been highlighted much out through history. When Ronald Reagan first ran for president in 1976, uh, he filled out a form that was sent to him by some evangelical group about what he believed. And he made it very clear that his hope was in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And he put his total faith and hope in him. And Michael related to me that he talked with him many times about the same thing. That was the foundation that Ronald Reagan had, and that's what made him strong. And then he had a clear view and understanding of what the founders believed. And Reagan wasn't new to the conservative cause. Yes, he was a Democrat early on, but he had subscribed to human events for many, many years and to National Review for many years. Actually, little story is after the Young America's Foundation bought the Reagan Ranch, Ron Robinson, who was then president, said, would you like to go out to the ranch and see it? And this is before any curator or anybody got there. And so I went out there, and we walked through the ranch, and it's very modest, very modest. Have you been there? I haven't been, but I've certainly seen the pictures. I know what you're talking about. You can't do this today. But I took off my shoes and stood on the sofa and pulled books off of his shelf. Mm. And I wanted to see what books he was reading. And there you could find Witness by Whitaker Chambers. You had all the conscience of a conservative. You had all these solid books by Reagan. And Reagan was much deeper than anybody ever appreciated in terms of his understanding of the foundational principles of the republic. And that's what I loved about Reagan. I think that's all reflected in the way he acted, his Christian temperament also was the way he reflected was reflected in the office and the way he he understood his life was that way even when he had been shot and everything he the man was just amazingly self-confident and that confident rested confidence rested in his faith in god there was a time bruce in this country and for perhaps many years that we were looking for, quote-unquote, the next Reagan. And unfortunately, I don't hear that much anymore. Obviously, we'll never find another man like him, but that was certainly something to aspire to. Is Reagan still influential in the way that he should be to today's generation? Well, I don't know. I hope he is. I, I think he, And I think he's even going to be more so. Uh, my wife and I are 
tiny investors in this new movie coming out uh, next year with Dennis Quaid in it, starring as Ronald Reagan. And Kathy and I have been able to actually see a screening of the movie, and it's, it's excellent. It really gives an understanding of Reagan's foundation in this movie. And I think it's going to do an awful lot to raise the profile of Reagan again. But you know, by the way, the Reagan Library itself is the most, still the most visited presidential library in America by a long shot. I work with them also. So I think that Reagan still is very strong in the hearts and minds. You, you do know that, of course, in the schools, they're not going to treat Reagan with the respect he deserves. And, and I'm talking public schools, of course. Uh, but we still have a lot of homeschoolers. We have a lot of private schoolers. I think that those people especially are learning about Reagan and still appreciating Reagan after all these years. And I think that he will uh, still be held in high esteem for many years. And, of course, Young America's Foundation has done a wonderful job of preserving his legacy. And I don't know whether you know this, but they now not only own the Reagan Ranch, but also bought the place where Reagan was born. Mm -hmm. And then they are now in control of, been given control of, the foundation uh, in Dixon, Illinois, where it was his boyhood home. They're doing wonderful things there. They're going to build some new uh, museums there and things and really bring that up to snuff. So this organization, Young America's Foundation, is doing wonderful things. As you said, I'm on the Board of Governors of the Reagan Ranch. The Shilling Show Unleashed podcast continues in a moment with our guest, Bruce Everly. Associated Press award-winning journalist, Rob Schilling. Shillingshowmedia.com is your one-stop shop for websites, audio and video production, and photography. Shillingshowmedia.com will take your project from conception to completion. Shillingshowmedia.com is reasonably priced and highly professional. Need a website for your business? Visit Shillingshowmedia.com. Need a video created or edited? Visit Shillingshowmedia.com. Have a photography or graphic design project? Visit Shillingshowmedia.com. Shillingshowmedia.com is your one-stop shop for websites, audio and video production, and photography. Visit Shillingshowmedia.com. That's Shillingshowmedia.com. Get your fix. Shilling Show Unleashed. Bruce Eberly is author of the new book, Choose Freedom, Embrace It, Understanding, and Defend It, and joins us here on the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Bruce, I want to talk about the fundamental divide, as you do so well in the book, between conservatives and progressives. And I want to start with the view of human nature, because that's really right at the basis of all of this. I was just always have been puzzled about what is it the one thing that divides conservatives from liberals. And it became very clear, especially when I got a chance to read some of the books written before the turn of the last century, uh, back in the 1800s, where the progressive movement came from. It's easier to understand it, of course, looking backwards. You take the early progressives like Woodrow Wilson and W.W. Willoughby and Richard T. Ely and Ross, the real leaders, of the thinkers of the progressive movement. And who were these men? They were typically young men who were too young to fight in the Civil War. But they were certainly supporters of the Civil War and cheering them on when they're, even at 10 years old, you can become indoctrinated in something so strongly. And then when the South lost, they were devastated. They went on, they were smart people, they went on to get college degrees, most of them went to Europe and studied the Frankfurt School in Germany, which was Hegel, 
taught Hegelism, and uh, they came back as neo-Hegelians. They rejected everything. Wilson, in particular, I don't think people appreciate that how much. You know, in 1907, he uh, talked to the Los Angeles Chamber of Commerce. This is three years before he was elected president, accidental president, as I would say. Mm. He said, each generation must form its own conception of what liberty is. And said that Jefferson and his colleagues, they couldn't prescribe it for any future generations of Americans, and we're not bound by the doctrines of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. Mm. The progressive movement in particular despises the Declaration of Independence for a number of reasons. One is it says everybody is created equal, and they don't like that. And secondly, they don't like the fact that it four times references God in the Declaration of Independence. And so they particularly despise the Declaration of Independence. The Constitution, they feel like they can, they've compromised enough that they can work with it. But the Declaration is something they don't, they don't like. But if you understand what happened to these young men, here it was, late 1800s, 1890s. Well, what happened in the 1890s? Edison started illuminating the cities. The cities had not been lit at night, except for gas lights, but that really wasn't anything for since the beginning of the world. And then by 1903, there was an airplane. By 1905, there was the Model T Ford. You know, and that soon after that, you had mass production, and you had tractors even, so that was no longer any need for mules. You could use tractors. The, the power with which the people were able to make money. Uh, this year, Kathy and I visited uh, on our 50th wedding anniversary, went to Mackinac Island. But on the way, we stopped at the Henry Ford Museum. And that was an eye-opener, too, that uh, Ford had created the first uh, eight-hour workday, the first five-day work week. And, you know, he, he did all sorts of incredible things because... The efficiencies which were brought in to the marketplace by the dramatic advances in technology, which took place between 1890 and 1950, we could even say, or later, were just unbelievable. We're seeing people live as well as they do today because of all those things that happened. And why did they happen? Well, ultimately, they happened because of God's blessing, but they also happen because of free markets and free enterprise, which is so far superior to socialism. I don't know why this the, the left is enamored with the socialism. It's never worked any place, anywhere, any time. And there's no wonder, because there's no incentive to create a high-quality product. There's no incentive to provide the best price. There, there's nothing in socialism that works. I've been in the free market. I was a businessman, and I didn't like competition any more than any other businessman did. But it made us work harder and be more creative and more inventive and be more competitive so that we could provide our services at the lowest possible rate to make ourselves competitive and actually provide the best quality services. And that's what free markets do. So it's not that I'm not interested in economics, but uh, this whole idea that somehow socialism works and and it can work anywhere is a pipe dream. But I think disturbingly, a lot of young people we've seen the polls recently are choosing at least the term socialism because they think that it's going to take care of them and give them everything for free. They won't have to work. They can pursue leisure and so forth. Uh, freedom is kind of a hard sell. And you referenced that it, it does need to be sold. But uh, why would people choose socialism? Is it just a matter of not understanding what that choice means? I think that's probably it. And, you know, if you're hearing this in grade school, you're hearing it in middle school, you're hearing it in high school, you're hearing it in college, 
pretty soon you have to start believing it. And as you know, there is no open and public debate, especially in colleges, when it comes to discussing freedom or liberty or anything you want to use for that matter, because they want to control what is able to be discussed. They're willing to have a bandwidth, as they put it, of discussion, but that bandwidth does not include freedom or Christianity or anything like that. You talk in the book and towards the close of the book about how we move forward. And number one, you talk about persuading other people. What's the best method by which to do that? (laughs) Well, I I write in there, and I I think I'm candid in there, saying that I'm sometimes the worst at possibly (laughs) doing this. But the truth of the matter is, if you really want to persuade someone, it's 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 one-on-one typically. You're not going to persuade someone just talking to a group of people. But it's usually one-on-one. And you can have all the facts you want to, but unless you're willing to first listen to the other person and respect the other person and find common ground with the other person, you're never going to have a chance to really persuade them of your facts. But I borrowed liberally, and I acknowledge that in the book, from Bill Richardson, the late Bill Richardson, who wrote that magnificent book way back when called Slightly to the Right. Richardson learned on the hard way himself that it is not easy to persuade someone to your point of view. And so you, instead of being the know-it-all and coming into the room saying, I I can do all this and you don't know what you're talking about, you've got to be willing to listen enough to build up a relationship. And it's only when you have that relationship that you have a chance of being persuasive. There's something that you said that I have been saying for years as well, and it's so important, is that we're constantly on the right, on the conservative side, playing defense. You say stay on offense. Tell us how we do that best. It it bothers me greatly when I see the Republicans or conservatives always playing defense. Mm -hmm. They're always saying, well, I'm not a racist. I'm not a sexist. I'm Mm -hmm. not a homophobic or whatever it is. That's the wrong way to start. The answer is to start, frankly, to be really candid, is if somebody says something to you about racism, say, well, let's look at racism. Let's see who implemented racism. It was the progressive movement. They were the ones that instigated segregation. They were the ones that instigated Jim Crow laws. And they were the ones that instigated poll taxes and literacy tests. So they they own that totally. And then if you get into eugenics, you see how they were the ones that, that started all that entire movement. And then they'll say, well, you're really like Adolf Hitler. Well, that's such a laughable thing because Hitler was a socialist. In fact, it wasn't, he took over the National German Workers Party, and he turned it into the National Socialist German Workers Party. He added the word socialist there, and some say, well, he didn't do it, but he certainly endorsed it. And he was certainly active in writing the platform for the Nazi Party, and which I point out is anything but a conservative platform. It sounds more like the Democratic Party platform of today than it does sound like Uh, anything having to do with conservatism or limited government. He talks about big government. He talks about the importance of having the media must be in the good interest of the people. Well, everybody is is in favor of it being in the being in the interest of the people. But then it comes down to who decides what's in the interest of the people, what's in the public interest. Bruce Eberle, if people would like to follow your work online or get a copy of your book, Choose Freedom, tell us how we can do those things. I don't have an online presence, really, but I'm on Facebook. The book can be acquired at Amazon, at 
Barnes & Noble. And by the way, I put in a pitch for Barnes & Noble. The owner of Barnes & Noble is a conservative, and so even though the bookstore owners may not be. So Barnes & Noble, Walmart, and all the other book sellers out there are all selling Choose Freedom. Well, it's highly recommended. You've done a wonderful job in making the case. Bruce Eberly, thank you for joining us today on the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Thank you so much, Rob. That concludes another edition of the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Visit us online at shillingshow.com where you can directly support this podcast by clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page and making a monthly donation. Your support is essential for the continuation of the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Until next time.